Welcome to the Scotland's Choice podcast. The journey to our referendum is underway, so join us as we discuss how together we can build a fairer, a more equal and a more prosperous Scotland. Our goal is to ensure that our listeners are informed, that they're encouraged to get involved and will hopefully inspire others to think about the possibilities for Scotland. The past few years have only served to highlight what allowing Westminster to make choices for us is like. So let's make the choices we want for our families and our communities right here in Scotland. I'm your host, Drew Hendry MP. Now let's find out who's joining me on Scotland's Choice today. Hi there, I'm Carol Monaghan. I'm the Member of Parliament for Glasgow Northwest. And I'm Brendan O'Hara. I am the Member of Parliament for Argyll and Butte. Well, welcome to Scotland's Choice. Today we're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to talk, instead of talking about independence, overtly, because this is obviously an independence podcast, we're going to talk about the State of the Union. It is about time to look at what's happening. So uh, let's start with you, Brendan, with cash for honours, contracts for chums, peerages against security advice, partygate, and much, much more going on. What does the State of the UK government say to you about the State of the Union? Well, I think it's, it's almost a metaphor for, for, for the union. You know, it's a bust ball. This government is a bust ball. And it's, it's led by, it's a rogue government led by a rogue prime minister. A guy who has no moral compass, no scruples, no humility, none of the characteristics that I would imagine that, that most people across the UK would expect their prime minister to have. This guy is devoid of all of them. And even to the extent that 148 of his backbenchers tried to oust him during the week, but he survived and he will he will go on. Um, but he is concentrating more and more power in his own hands. And it's I, I think it, the, the union is, is a hole beneath the waterline. And the only card they have now is to try and prevent us having a referendum. Uh, when we want to have it. Carol, because they'll lose. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's it's really interesting because you would think at this point with the Tories in the state that they're in, that there would be a bit of um, introspection, a bit of a evaluation of their own self. But what they're doing instead is throwing out all sorts of insults uh, towards Scottish government, towards Scottish members of parliament, as though somehow we're we're of a, a similar ilk. It's, it's interesting, but I do. I, I think I should remind the uh, viewers that it was just along the road from where I am just now in Partick that we got a very astute assessment of uh, Boris Johnson and it was painted on on the side of uh, the building and it it said Boris Johnson is a pure and I'll let the listeners uh, (laughs) fill in the blanks and that was that was painted over within a few days by the council but they then repeated the message that Boris Johnson was still a pure um, and um, and I think that probably sums it up but interestingly enough although my constituents here in Partick are a very um are, are able to work out the the manner of man that Boris Johnson is. It seems that he still has a decent amount of of support mm-hmm. uh, within people of England, and I think it, sh- it is important that we kind of step back and reflect on that and say, are we going to align ourselves with that, 
or are we going to choose a different path? And I think more and more people are starting to think if that's if that is what the people of England are voting for, then it is time that we do think differently about what we are, whether they were pro-independence before or not. Because as always, England gets what England votes for and Scotland gets what England votes for. I think that's a really good point, Carol. That, and I made this point to, to somebody yesterday. That if you remember where Tony Blair was, against John Major. And you remember what we thought was sleaze and scandal with Major. You know, you look back in those days, now is like halcyon days of democracy. <laughs> and Blair was absolutely miles ahead of, of John Major. You know, the, the procession to Downing Street in 97 was, you know, everyone knew from years out it was going to be a landslide starmer. Now, only two, three, four, five, six points ahead. He should be double digits, multiple double digits ahead, and he's not. And therefore, I don't think we can just take it for granted that uh, because we can see through Johnson and the Tories and what they're like, that that'll necessarily translate into how other parts of this union vote. It's not just the, the kind of scandals and things that are hitting the headlines. There's a lot of stuff that doesn't hit the headlines in terms of the mechanics of Westminster. I mean, the public must imagine there are all kinds of democratic and constitutional protections for their rights, for their monies, for their for the money, for their freedoms. What What is your view of the actual case at Westminster just now? It's pretty much you can buy your way into power. I, we had, years ago, we had uh, the very infamous cash for honour scandal, but it seems we're back in that. Not only can you buy your way into power, but you can also buy your way into contracts. You can um, buy your way into influence. You can buy your way into um, meetings that other people are, don't have access to. So it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty bad. And, and I think we also have to look at, at what... So it's all very well saying that, that if you're rich and powerful enough, you can get into a position where you can influence democracy. Goodness, that's quite a statement in itself. Um, but we also have to look at how that impacts other people and, and the, the erosion of rights of other people is quite incredible as well. And we've had over the last few years all sorts of things. We're talking about um, sending asylum seekers to Rwanda. We've had the wind rush scandal. We're now looking at um, curbing the, the freedom to protest. So it's pretty, as well as one group of people being able to buy influence, we've got another group of people that are having all sorts of legal um, sort of protections taken away from them. It's it's a pretty worrying time. Yeah, I, I think the, the United Kingdom is on a precipice. I think it's going somewhere which is extremely dangerous and it'll be very difficult for from it for, to, to, to come back from. And, I, mean, I said in, in the, the House of Commons the other day there on a debate on the ministerial code, the 48 hours have, of having been utterly eviscerated by the Sue Gray report and having stood there and said how humbled he was and how contrite he was, first thing he did was he altered the ministerial code so that he avoided more scrutiny and gave himself more powers. And, now, and, and it lays bare what we have always known as being the major fault in this whole system is that there are no rules mm. and everything is based on the good chap philosophy that everyone who's in that office will act with decency and honour. Well, what happens when you have a guy, which we have now, who has no decency, who is devoid of honour, 
who has no sense of shame and who will just tough it out until the new cycle moves on. And he yeah. is taking his cronies with him. And there is, as we have discovered to our cost, there is almost nothing that the parliament can do to stop him. And of because course, this whole nonsense of good chap uh, philosophy simply doesn't work. And of course, having said he was humbled, um, went to the 1922 committee and said he'd do it all over again. <laughs> do it all again, right? Absolutely. So, I mean, I think we're in, we're in completely uncharted waters with this guy. And I think that he is, he is in a strange place now where he's under 48, having voted against him. And you're trying to second guess what his next move might be. Well, of course, that all leads on to some of the difficulties that the public are actually feeling because of policies um, that at Westminster. We've seen some pretty stark economic figures just this week. Although much of the world has had pressures on inflation and rising costs, why do you think it's so much worse here in the UK as opposed to elsewhere? I mean, I, I think we, we, we cannot escape Brexit. You know, Brexit looms a, a massive shadow over everything that we do and everything that happens and roots lead back to, to Brexit. I, I challenged Mr. Mogg uh, yesterday in the, the, the House of Commons. I, I, you know, it was about how, yes, Brexit has been successful if you're a hedge fund manager or a city spiv, but if you're a small SME company who has, for the past four decades, perfected exporting into Europe, your entire market base was predicated on the idea we would always be part of the European Union, you are, you're sinking, yeah, and you're sinking fast. And I challenged Mog on this yesterday, and to which he replied, the sun is shining. You know, the sun is shining if you're a multi-millionaire. But if you're a small business owner and you're trying to keep a business going, you're, you're, you're so up against it, it's almost not true. So we have all the external factors and a lot of which they are affecting the world. But what we have uniquely here is we have committed the most grievous act of economic self-harm on ourselves, I mean the UK, and we're now looking around for excuses as to why this is happening. We know why it's happening. It's happening because of Brexit. Yeah, and I would I would add to that as well, Brendan, and I think Brendan's right. The the biggest um, issue here is Brexit. It's the ability to trade, it's the ability to to actually do business, um, has has been massively reduced. And if you look at a country like Ireland, for example, it's experiencing the same inflation. Not, but not quite as high, but it's experiencing inflation. It is experiencing fuel cost rises. Um, but actually, its economy is booming, and its economy is booming because it's able to trade. And if the economy is booming, then you have some protection and some ability to, to raise funds to deal with this. But what we've done in the same situation, as well as Brexit, we've got these costs rising, but have we, have we seen any big drop in fuel duty? No, we've not. So as the oil price rises, so does the tax income from that. Um, we've seen national insurance rises, which are which impact the, those at the, you know, living in the very margins. 
We've got extremely high levels of VAT. That could be reduced. That would make a difference as well to basic household incomes. Because, I mean, we, we, we heard yesterday the report that said, the OECD report that said um, economic growth next year is expected to drop to zero. I mean, that's, that's brutal. People don't literally are not going to have the money for all the little extras that they would have. And some people won't have have the money even for the basics. Um, it, is, it is problematic and it's problematic because we've got two groups of people. We've got groups of people that read about the headline cost of living crisis, but are never touched by it. And we've got the people that are actually living this. And unfortunately, more and more people in our communities are not just been touched, but have been hit brutally by it. And these are policy choices we're talking about that are affecting people. Absolutely. These are policy. And you also look at countries like, for example, you know, Italy, who are who are helping their, their citizens with the cost of, of oil. You know, there are, there are things that can be done. They're helping their citizens with fuel costs. Meanwhile, in your constituencies, Brendan and Drew, you're producing renewable energy and yet you can it's costing an absolute fortune to even feed that into the national grid. Why are producers here in Scotland been been hammered yeah. um, in order to to provide energy at low cost? I'm gonna I'm gonna bring Brendan in on that in just a second, but I think you you were talking about other countries. There's lots of other countries taking making interventions to help people just now. Norway, over a certain amount, are paying 80% of increased energy costs for the, uh, for the citizens. And uh, we've seen the situation in France where they've been able to uh, have much lower energy cost rises as well because of policy decisions they've taken. Brendan, you want to come in on that? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I think if you look back to the, the, the 70s and the 80s where Scotland produced the energy and received virtually nothing of the benefits, we're in grave danger of having it again as another energy boom on our doorstep, and we're in grave danger of missing out on it. You know, and even a, a sort of a, a minimal, a minimal risk of a bit of investment for R&D and some tax breaks for tidal or, or uh, offshore, you know, there, there, are, there are requests being made of this government, which because it doesn't mean that much to them, or they don't really understand, or let's be frank, they're so okay. they're all they're nuclear that they will not make the investment. And so we are on the, the cusp of this second energy boom, this green renewable boom, and we're in great danger of missing out as we did in the, the 70s and 80s. So, I mean, this is the question. You know, they, when people are arguing about uh, you know, the broad shoulders of the UK and independence. How can, how can other similarly sized countries to Scotland, normal independent countries, be faring so much better than those broad, broad shoulders of the UK, Brendan? Oh, I think quite simply because they have the, 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 the political power to set their own path and to, to decide their own priorities. And I think as well for a lot of European countries, it's because if you like, they have the broad shoulders of the European Union, you know, where they can operate within that single market and they have that ability to move freely between them. So, so I've always said that Brexit would be a disaster for the United Kingdom. It would be an, a, a just unbelievably damaging to Scotland. But if you're on the periphery of a periphery, like many of our constituents are through, you know, this is catastrophic. This is existential. And yet we have the ability 
and we have the, the, the natural resources to turn it around, but we don't have the political power that would let us do it. And that's, that, that, that's the, the, the biggest thing for, for me is, is having the political power to set your own path, to decide your own priorities, both economically and socially, and more, most importantly, repopulate this country as well. Carol, you mentioned Ireland earlier, um, and you know, there's lots of other countries like Norway, Sweden, uh, Finland, other countries that um, you know are out there making their own choices, doing their own things for their people just now. What does Scotland not have that these countries do? Well, I think Brendan's already said it. it doesn't it doesn't have the power to to make its own policies that it needs. It can't it can't choose its own immigration policies. I mean, I I find it funny. I get emails occasionally from constituents that talk about um, the SNP letting in all these people and letting in these these asylum seekers and these refugees and you kind of think if only really? <laughs> we've got a war in ukraine i've yeah. got constituents emailing me all the time saying i've got room in my house can i can i bring somebody in but you know what in the middle of the most brutal war that we've seen in decades in europe um we've we've got a government in Westminster that says refugees fleeing this war need to have a visa. Mm-hmm. And and crazy situations like, you know, a mum and two kids, the mum and one of the kids gets granted a visa and the other kid doesn't get a visa. What kind of country is this? This is great. So so I, it, I think first and foremost, we need to be able to, to make our own policies around immigration. Scotland, um, many of the countries that you've just mentioned, Drew, are countries that have probably suffered from similarly from Scotland with um, elderly and dwindling populations. We need we need people to come here. And immigration has been so positive. Mm. Uh, when we were part of the European Union, we saw our tourism industry flourishing because we were able to get young people coming and working in our hotels and our um, hospitality. That was really important. But alongside that, we also had you know, academic coming and working in our universities. We had business people coming and setting up and um, providing jobs there as well. So I think immigration is one of the most important things that an independent Scotland has has control over. And, and sadly, it's not something we have control of here in Scotland. Yep. Brendan, Westminster keeps telling us that we need the UK uh, for Scotland. What, why, is it, why is Scotland uniquely unable to uh, operate as a independent country, according to people that would say that at Westminster. Why indeed? Why indeed? <laughs> I mean, uh, I mean, it's, it's just, it's just that, that almost we've been conditioned to believe that we are somehow uniquely incapable in the world of looking after our own affairs and looking after our own people or taking a different path from the, whatever government happens to be uh, in, in power at Westminster. And I think people have, we have a, we have a job to do. We have a job to do to, to, to sell that positive vision of Scotland and also to say to people it's about responsibility. Mm-hmm. You know, you take responsibility for this country and where it goes in the direction and the shape that uh, we, we, we want to see it. And, and, and what Carol was saying there as well, you know, that we have this immigration policy which does not suit the needs of Scotland. In fact, it's, it's actively working against the needs of Scotland. Now, it was decided in a sort of, you know, 
it was decided around the needs of people in Kent and the, all the rest of all these channel constituencies where the political power is. But this isn't neutral for Scotland. This is actively working against mm-hmm. the interests of Scotland. And if there is one thing, I'll probably come on to it later, is what we would do, an immigration policy that works for Scotland is absolutely essential. So, you know, you're talking there about taking responsibility. You know, Scotland going forward as an independent country, if we're taking that message to people, it won't all be plain sailing, will it? There'll be, uh, there'll be mistakes, there'll be things that yeah. go wrong in government. Those are uh, things that would happen. How, how do the um, mistakes and the things that go wrong uh, compare to those that are happening at Westminster just now? I mean, I'm reading about the, the Treasury making a mistake over uh, interest rates just now, which is going to cost £11 billion. How, how do the, the kind of mistakes an independent Scotland would make fare against the ones that are being made day by day at Westminster just now? I think, um, I think one of the things about being independent is you've got to be free to to furrow your own path. And I, I think of I think of kids leaving the house and going and setting up in their their own home. Are they going to get everything right? No, they're not. Are they going to you know? Are there things that maybe they would choose to do differently? Probably. But I also think of myself, and I've got you know kids thinking of along those ways at the moment. Do I get surely not? Right? You're, surely not. You're far too. I know it's hard to believe. <laughs> it's hard to believe, but you know that don't get everything right either. But in terms of mistakes, I think I, I always find it incredible that you know we talk about uh, an overspend of whatever on particular contract or this or that. I mean, let's talk about HS two. I mean, HS two is cancelled. The, the link to Scotland cancelled. Yeah. Yeah, so the link to Scotland's cancelled, so we, we're not getting any benefit out of it. In fact, I think it's it's reckoned it's going to take longer to go from Scotland to London because you would need to change from an HS2 train to a regular train and wait for that. So it's going to actually take, make our journeys longer. Um, but the money, I think, to start with, and, and I'm sure you guys have got the figures, but was it not something like £50 billion to start with? And now it's estimated it's going to cost over £120 billion. Now, do we see that smacked about when we're talking a little bit about wasted, wasted money? Um, so the, there's things like that. It seems that whatever uh, things or challenges the Scottish government have, they're, they're always much worse than the yeah. mistakes that have mm. been made at Westminster. Um, because Westminster, of course, couldn't possibly make it. And, and, and I do think the media have a role to play in this as well, because the media are quite happy to slam the Scottish government and quite happy to ignore the, the issues that Westminster have. I mentioned HS2. We could talk about the, the cost of Crossrail. We could talk about the, the price of Trident Renewal. We could talk about the Ajax tanks that have, have been are pretty much useless, but several billion have been spent on them. So there's many, many things that we could talk about that has been wasted money that seems okay for Westminster to waste, but goodness, don't don't waste a hundred thousand pounds in Scotland. We're not each should. I think as well, going back to your original point about independence and, and mistakes, and I think we've we have a responsibility to be honest with the Scottish people that you know independence isn't necessarily a panacea. You know, there is no silver bullet. Uh, you know, but what independence allows us to do is to to start turning the oil tanker, mm-hmm. and perhaps rather than having, you know, the the captain of that oil tanker being 
almost exclusively drawn from the same elite group of old Etonians or old Haverians or Havorians or the hell they call themselves, you know, that a Scottish government, I think as we have seen in, in, at Holyrood, is far more reflective and representative of the people who elect it than any UK government that I've ever seen. You know, the, this, this self-perpetuating elite who seem to constantly, whether in politics or in the civil service, seem to run the United Kingdom. We've got to break that link. And, and I think that, that where the Scottish government has done very well is that when it does make mistakes, there is a sense in, in, in the, the, the community, the wider community, that yes, they make mistakes. Yes, they should be held to account for those mistakes. Yes, they should be called out on those mistakes. But there is a overriding sense that they were honest mistakes and that there's, this, is a, this is a government which is on the side of the people. And I think mm. that's really, really important because I don't think that is a, a thought down the road. And I absolutely take Carol's point, you know, that, you know, but a, a, a cancellation of a train timetable and Nicholas on the front page of the paper, you would never see that. Never see that in the United Kingdom term, you know, the cancellation of trains and Boris Johnson being in the front page. So there, there is an equivalence there, yep. which uh, is just not there. Um, but I don't think that's permeating into the, the, the wider psyche because I believe that Scottish people see that this is a government that is on their side. And yes, it does make mistakes. And they can also see that any government they would have in Scotland would be under far greater scrutiny than the government right. they might have at at Westminster. Okay, I want want to just go back a wee bit to um, the, the people in your constituencies. You both mentioned those. How are people in your different constituencies affected by policies that they didn't vote for at the moment? Brendan, you would start with that? Well, again, at the, the risk of sounding like a stock record, with a Tory government we didn't elect, with a Brexit we didn't vote for, and we've got nuclear weapons out this just over out my window, mm -hmm. of which we overwhelmingly rejected. So off the top of my head, there, there, there is three. Now we start getting down to to sort of more prosaic things, you know, you know, benefits cuts, universal credit cut, fuel duty. You know, there are a hundred and one things which in fragile rural communities are incredibly important. You know, because we, we, we don't have the, the support mechanism that big cities have or large towns have. Um, and so there, there, there is a, there's an even greater need to identify and prop up and support people who, who need it in these rural, fragile rural communities. And that social safety net, my, from day one, we've always said that our office would be part of that social safety net. We would be a Stein posting service to an recipient from others. Mm. And before we are seen is the gaps in that net are being deliberately made wider and that more and more people are falling through and there are more and more people that we are unable to help because of the legislation changes from this government. And it is heartbreaking. Well, Carol, the same question to you, but maybe you could add on what, what's been the impact for the, uh, on the opportunities for young people? I think probably first and foremost, it's their ability to be mobile. Um, you know, if you, you look at young people and possibly wanting to, to travel, as, as some young people do, that's that's become more difficult. Um, 
many, many young people, though, I mean, just want to kind of get out, get their job um, set up. And we've got minimum wage been set by Westminster, a minimum wage that's only a minimum wage if you're over a certain age. So if you're under 25, your minimum wage is less than, than um, it is for others. So, um, so we've got this minimum wage that they've now given its funny name, the pretendy living wage, as Alison Hewless, our colleague, would call it, but this um, national living wage, as they call it. It's not the living wage, it's the national living wage, um, which is essentially a minimum wage. So this minimum wage impacts their ability to go out and earn a decent a decent living. But, I mean, I also want to just, just kind of mention another couple of things um, and these, some of these are quite niche things, but, but nevertheless, they are important. We've talked a lot about Brexit. Now, Brexit, the biggest impact on Brexit is our ability to, to trade goods, services, move people about, move, move finances about. That's, that's our biggest impact um, for Brexit. But there are other things as well. And uh, up until the point of Brexit, we were part of Horizon 2020, which is a collaboration, a European collaboration in science and research, which allows young people to, to be part of the biggest group of scientific research on the planet, essentially. Um, and uh, because of carry on with the Northern Ireland Protocol, they still haven't worked out our membership of the next stage of Horizon, which is Horizon Europe, which means that many research groups, many academics, many sort of young um, kind of postdoc researchers, early career researchers are not able to, to participate in these collaborations. And it's so it's becoming more difficult for them. Now I understand that that's quite niche, but for many young people, that's that's quite important. But I also want to say something, I mean, Brendan's mentioned a lot of the policies, certainly around benefits, things like universal credit, we have bedroom tax that have been um, foisted upon us. The rape it is important. It is important to say that the Scottish government have done an awful lot of work in mitigating the impact of this. So Westminster takes away and then Scottish government uses part of its budget that should be used for other things to mitigate the worst impact of that for people. And we've seen recently, we've seen the Scottish government introduce the Scottish child payment um, of £20 a week for, for eligible children. So that's children living in, in poverty, um, essentially. So, so it seems as though not only are we getting policies that we didn't vote for, but we're then having to use Scottish uh, government budget to, to mitigate the impact of these. Now, I'm not suggesting that the Scottish government should be doing anything but that, and, and it's good that they, they've been able to, but they must understand that that's then money that can't be spent on other things. So, so it is, it's problematic. So I think there are people, there are people certainly in parts of England that are having these, that are feeling the impact of these policies much more acutely because they don't have the buffer of, of what the Scottish government's doing. And that doesn't mean it's not tough for, for people here in Scotland as well. But at least in some areas, the Scottish government is able to make things slightly easier. And that's running up to hundreds of millions of pounds, I think something over... £700 million pounds in mitigations. It's a huge amount of the Scottish government's budget, yeah. And it's important it's spent, but it, it is, it's huge. 
Okay, I want to um, finish up this episode with a conversation on nuclear weapons. Carol, uh, your constituency in Glasgow Northwest isn't far from Faslane. Of course, Brendan, you can see it out the uh, window um, pretty much. And that's the UK's uh, nuclear submarine base. How, how does that being there sit with you? Do you think nuclear weapons are an appropriate use of taxpayers' money in a modern country? Do you think they're uh, morally acceptable? And I think we should also note that I think the cost of renewing Trident is now up to, uh, you know, something in the region of £200 billion. And, well, I, I should say, first of all, Drew, that I was campaigning against nuclear weapons before I was campaigning for Scottish independence. Um, and uh, it was it was one of the reasons, one of the many reasons, but one of the, the, the kind of key reasons that, that I became interested in Scottish independence because I, I saw that as the only vehicle really to, to get rid of uh, nuclear weapons from the Clyde Jets, but 30 miles from where I am just now. So if anything did happen or there were to be an attack, it would be people in Glasgow that would be feeling, well, Brendan wouldn't feel it. He'd be gone instantly. <laughs> <laughs> he would, he would feel it. But, um, but now, here's, here's the thing. Ben Wallace has made some comments, I think, yesterday or today, that he's he started saying things about um, Scotland's policy or the SNP policy on NATO and an independent Scotland, and he said he said oh it used to be the case that they were for NATO and um, would need to you know would need to be careful about it, this in the future. The SNP has been very clear. We had a very big and highly publicised conference at motion uh, motion at conference sorry um, a number of years back where our position on NATO was decided and has been clearly stated many, many times. Yes. So um, we are committed to being a member state of NATO, but we are not committed to hosting the uh, UK's um, nuclear deterrent here. We should be campaigning to get rid of these weapons throughout the planet, actually. And um, and and I think we can only do that if we take the the... Um, position of getting rid of them from here. So this would be a piece of work that would be started in, oh, immediately following an independence vote or a, a vote for independence. And Brendan, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I joined very, very much with Carol and uh, it's interesting this weekend and I'm sure you'll join me in, in wishing a happy 40th birthday to the Fazlane Peace Camp. And, uh, <laughs> happy birthday to the Fazlane Peace Camp. And, <laughs> Um, just uh, as uh, some events happening just uh, down the road over, over the weekend, which I hope to manage to get down to tomorrow. Um, and yeah, you know, it, it, it's, it's got bigger and it's got smaller and bigger again as the immediacy of the debate on Trident has ebbed and flowed. But I think we should thank them for being that permanent conscience of the nation. You know, they've been there for 40 years and, you know, well done to them. Mm -hmm. um, because I think they can see, as, as we've seen in, if we were full disclosure mode, I, I think I was also a member of CND before I was a member of the SNP. Although I've been a member of the SNP for 42 years, so show you how long I Now everyone I, can believe my, how old my you are. anti-nuclear traditions <laughs> are, but I mean, I've said I've always believed, and I will, I will never waver in my belief that you know, there's no economic, military or, or moral case for, for having nuclear weapons. For the, for the United Kingdom, they're, they're, it's a it's a political weapon. Mm -hmm. It always has been a political weapon, um, and it's there 
almost as a, a national virility symbol. Well, stay with us. It's a seat at the big boys' table at the United Nations. Absolutely. And, and it is exactly that, Carol. It's this myth of being a superpower. And it is a complete myth. And without those nuclear weapons, then we wouldn't have that seat at the table. And yes, yet again, this is the United Kingdom uh, in search of a better yesterday. And I think there is there has to be a better future. There has to be a, a, a more strategic future for an independent Scotland. And I will repeat ad nauseum that key to that strategic future defence for independent Scotland is Faz Lane. And Faz Lane can and will be whatever a Scottish government deems it to be. And it will be a huge part of our contribution to our NATO allies. Because we, whether we like it or not, we are in a strategic hotspot in the world. That Greenland-Iceland-Scotland gap has to be defended and has to be monitored. It has to be protected. And we have a fantastic facility on our doorstep which gives you open access into the North Atlantic. And so there's nothing incompatible with being anti-nuclear but still being maintaining our, our, our membership of, of, of NATO. Um, and I, I share Carol's belief absolutely that we have to start that process yeah. of unilaterally disarming mm. uh, as, as soon as it's practical after independence, as soon as it's safe to do so, we get those weapons out of here and we have a far more positive, outward-looking uh, and collaborative defence for an independent and Scotland as part of NATO. Important to underline, of course, that the majority of NATO member countries don't have nuclear weapons. Well, there are only yeah. three. Yeah, uh, the United States, France and and the UK, no one else has them. Yeah. And you know, if you think, you know, the, the United States has got five and a half thousand warheads and the UK's contribution is somewhere around 220 or something like that. You know, so it gives you the scale of what the UK has. And the idea that that is independent of the United States is utter fanciful nonsense. And to, to, to sink, you know, 200 billion pounds into renewing it, you know, when at the same time as you're cutting army numbers and you're cutting uh, conventional defence forces, it, it, yeah. it just lays bare this whole political weapon argument because that's what they are. Yeah, that's that's what I was just going to add. I mean, we've, we've seen with the war in Ukraine how important it is to have a conventional capability. And, um, you know, what we should be concentrating on is our sea defence and, you know, only now are we starting to see some frigates been, been built after years of not having anything. So everything essentially was going into the one basket. You know, all the eggs were in one basket. If, if Putin decided to invade here, we could either wave, wave a pitchfork at him or we could nuke him because everything else has been cut right down to the bone. And it's... Yeah. it's um, I mean, that's that's really, it's it's not the way modern defence should be. We need to be spending much more money. And I would hope in an independent Scotland, we look at these areas. We look at things like cybersecurity. We look at space because space is, is where the next kind of um, important area as well. It's the current important area. If you consider that much of our economic trade and um Lots of our communications are all controlled from space. That's where we should be constant or putting money towards, not into an outdated, you know, um, big white elephant that's not going to do what it's supposed to do. 
And I should also, I can also say a wee, a wee word of thanks to the peace campaigners. And um, Brendan and Drew will know, maybe not all of the, the um, listeners will know that, um, that my husband served on the Trident submarines and he always, as he passed the peace camp, always gave them a wee toot toot and a wave. <laughs> and um, one time he was asked at the gate of Faz Lane why he was doing that. And he said, we serve here so that their democratic right to protest is preserved there. And don't ever forget it, regardless of where you are on the nuclear question. That is really important that if we're in the armed forces to defend democracy, then part of the democracy is, is their right to, uh, to campaign against us. A, so I think that's important as well. What a fantastic uh, an anecdote that is to, to, to bring up for us. It, it, we're, we're kind of running out of time here just now, so I want to ask you uh, another question. It's one we ask all of our guests on Scotland's Choice. You've already talked about, you know, immigration and uh, the fact that uh, if we had powers over that, we'd probably be making uh, very different choices. But if you could take an, another policy, one other policy that you could change um, to from an existing one that we can't currently due to being tethered to Westminster, what would that policy be? Brendan? Um, I think you're right to, to identify immigration. I think that's number one. I, off the top of my head, I think that one of the worst things that this uh, government has done at Westminster is cut overseas aid. Uh, they, they, they cut uh, four or five billion pounds of aid in the middle of a global pandemic was bordering on wicked. Uh, and it was done in the absolute certain knowledge of the consequences. And in my, in my role as the international human rights spokesperson, I, I'm now again doing quite a bit of traveling and I go to these places and the impact of the cuts are, are there for all to see that undeniable. So one thing I would ensure that a Scottish government spent as much as it possibly could and certainly met its minimum international obligation to overseas development. And Carol? It's difficult to, I've, I've, I've started scribbling things down, Drew. It's difficult to... <laughs> Only asking for to, one. <laughs> I know, but the, the thing is, what Brendan says about internationally aided, I mean, there, there are impacts as well that we feel here as a result of not... Um, not investing internationally. You know, when we when we look at um, people coming here and we talk about, you know, a, a, um, migration to the UK from parts of Africa, part of the reason for that is that countries are not investing and there's not, there's not kind of um, businesses being developed there in, in developing worlds. So these are things that, uh, investment in international aid actually does help and it helps to keep people and giving people the ability to remain where um where they're born so i mean there are there are reasons why even the tories might consider looking at the benefits for um for the, the you know for investing globally um but i think one of the things that i have hold breath on that but yeah 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 <laughs> Um, no, no. Um, I think one of the difficulties I have is with tax legislation. And you've asked for one thing, and that is, I believe the UK has the most complex tax laws in the world. But that allows uh, businesses to offshore their wealth so that they're not paying tax. It allows 
um, lush, Russian oligarchs to, to launder money within the city of London and within, within um, various Scottish limited companies, as they're called. There are all sorts of loopholes and poisonous little warts within UK tax law. Mm -hmm. So I think it would be it would be great if we could rip that up and start again where we actually have a, a tax law that works for those that, that live here um, in the UK. But um, better still, maybe with an independent Scotland, we can start again and we can write proper tax laws that are a benefit, benefit to all of us. Carol Monaghan. Sorry, Drew, can I just very, very quickly, Carol, Carol was saying about um, investing in, the, in the, the developing world. Of course, climate change. Um, yeah, is, right. is a huge driver of of, of migration. Mm -hmm. There is a belt around uh, the equator in which people can no longer live. Uh, yeah. Desertification, I like to call it, is moving south and it's moving north, and it's dragging people with it. At a time when the United Kingdom are cutting aid and sending people back to Central Africa. It just shows a lack of, an incredible short-term thinking and a lack of being able to think outside of silos uh, and it's a, that's a hallmark of the UK. When, when we could actually use those people here in Scotland as well. If, no, if you chance, but anyway. Okay, Brendan O'Hara, Carol Monahan, thank you very much indeed for joining us on Scotland's Choice. It's a pleasure. Thanks, Drew. Thanks for listening to Scotland's Choice. You can find new and previous episodes of Scotland's Choice at scotlandschoice.scot and you can watch the full-length videos on YouTube. If you can share this podcast and our videos, it can help others with their decision on Scotland's future. I'm Drew Hendry and I hope you'll join me next time on Scotland's Choice. Mm -hmm.